welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Shooter, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 114, Diving Down the Low-Carb Rabbit Hole My last two articles and podcast episodes on high blood pressure, that's five reasons to think twice before taking blood pressure drugs and nine steps to optimal blood pressure, have generated some lively discussion in the Substack comments section. I received some pushback from people who believe that a ketogenic or carnivore diet is the best way to reduce blood pressure, reverse insulin resistance and prevent cardiometabolic disease. I welcome polite and respectful debate as we all benefit from having our opinions and beliefs challenged through the presentation of contradictory evidence. However, I do set some ground rules. Firstly, I respect people's personal experience when it comes to their various dietary experiments, but such anecdotes do not constitute scientific evidence. If a particular diet seems to be working for you, I'm very happy for you, but don't expect me to abandon the recommendations that I currently make based on over three decades of studying the research literature and conducting my own clinical practice because of your N equals one experiment. And secondly, I'm not generally interested in watching videos of my readers' favorite dietary gurus because at least 90% of these videos are simply storytelling unrooted in any actual evidence. However, one of my readers was so insistent that I would learn life-changing new information if I viewed some videos of one such guru, Dr. Paul Mason, that I decided to watch the recommended presentation. I wouldn't say I learned anything new, but I did come away impressed by how many distortions, half-truths and assorted logical fallacies a single individual can pack into a 26-minute lecture. The presentation is called Decoding Atherosclerosis, The Clotting Theory and Seed All Toxicity, and I have a link to the video in the post accompanying this podcast episode. I'm going to share some timestamps and quotes from this presentation along with my critiques. Starting at 16 seconds in. Now today I'm going to challenge everything you know about this disease, which is atherosclerosis. My regular readers might recall that this claim, or any other variation of everything the experts tell you about nutrition is wrong, is one of the red flags of nutritional charlatanry that I highlighted in a previous article and podcast episode called Debunking Nutrition Myths, A How-To Guide. It's not that there aren't any controversies in nutrition science. Of course there are, as in other disciplines. And it's not that it's impossible for a large percentage of researchers in a given field to be operating within a paradigm that turns out to be either completely wrong or inadequate to explain observable phenomena. Max Planck's observation that science advances one funeral at a time is as true today as it ever was. But I am immediately on my guard when I hear anyone claim that everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Let's see if Dr. Mason delivers that extraordinary evidence. At 24 seconds in... You've been told that high LDL cholesterol coats the inside of blood vessels in much the same way that the drain gets clogged by fat. And this is just absurd. I agree that this is an absurd claim, but I don't know of any researcher in the field of atherosclerosis who makes it. 
Doctors may use silly analogies like this with their patients when they either don't have a sufficiently solid grasp of the etiology of atherosclerosis to explain it properly, or they don't have time to explain it properly, or they believe that they need to dumb down their messaging as their patients won't understand a complex explanation. But this is not how atherosclerosis is described in the scientific and medical literature. Mason is simply employing a straw man argument, perhaps to build a bond between him and his audience so they can feel superior to the ignorant masses, including many doctors, who believe stupid ideas. At 35 seconds in... High LDL cholesterol levels are in fact associated with longevity. The overwhelming finding of this systematic review of 19 cohort studies with more than 68,000 participants found that people with higher LDL cholesterol levels lived longer. The study that informs Mason's claim is lack of an association or an inverse association between low-density lipoprotein cholesterol and mortality in the elderly, a systematic review, and I've linked to it in the post to come from this podcast episode. This paper suffers from multiple serious methodological weaknesses, including the following. No study hypothesis, no predefined statistical analysis or study protocol was provided, making it difficult for readers to check the author's work. The authors used an extremely limited search strategy in which only one electronic database, that's PubMed, was searched using a small number of text words, lipoprotein and old or elderly and mortality, not animal, not trial. The use of this limited search strategy put the review at high risk of bias for emitting relevant studies. More on this soon. 263 of the 282 full-text articles initially identified were excluded from analysis, and the reasons for excluding these studies were not given. Criteria for including or excluding studies were inconsistently applied, suggesting cherry-picking to suit the author's preconceptions. For example, one of the exclusion criteria was, quote, studies without multivariate correction for the association between LDL cholesterol and all-cause and or cardiovascular mortality. Yet, a study which contributed two-thirds of the total number of participants included in this analysis did not include such multivariate correction, and hence should have been excluded. Interestingly, this study found that, quote, statin treatment after inclusion, that is inclusion in the study, provided a survival benefit, end quote, undermining the claims of the authors of the systematic review that, quote, the benefits from statin treatment have been exaggerated, end quote. Just a footnote on that point. It is very important to acknowledge that there are major controversies about the benefits and risks of statins. As one of my favourite websites for appraising the risk-to-benefit ratio of medical interventions, a site called the NNT, which by the way stands for the number needed to treat, puts it, quote, virtually all of the major statin studies were paid for and conducted by their respective pharmaceutical company. A long history of misrepresentation of data and occasionally fraudulent reporting of data suggests that these results are often much more optimistic than subsequent data produced by researchers and parties that do not have a financial stake in the results, end quote. Nonetheless, the failure of the authors of this systematic review to make any attempt to appraise the potential for confounding resulting from participants commencing lipid-lowering treatments after study enrolment is a major methodological error. Now, conversely, another study, again, I've linked to all the studies that I'm referring to in the post accompanying podcast episode, was excluded from the analysis, supposedly because it, quote, included the same individuals as in a previous study, end quote. However, the excluded study, which presented more detailed statistical analysis, reached a different conclusion to the included study, namely that there was no association between LDL cholesterol and mortality. And yet another study which fulfilled the inclusion criteria was not mentioned at all. 
This study found that even in very elderly people, those with high LDL cholesterol due to genetic factors had higher all-cause mortality. Quote, in longitudinal analysis, high genetic risk score was associated with increased all-cause mortality in individuals over 90 years, with a 13% increased risk in individuals with the highest LDL genetic risk score. End quote. Conversely, genetic disposition to low LDL cholesterol was, quote, associated with familial longevity, end quote. No details of the statistical analysis methods used in the paper were provided. Participant-level data was not available to or was not sought by the authors. Instead, they relied on limited, aggregated, and inconsistent information from published sources, an approach which introduces potential bias into the analysis. No statistical adjustments were made to account for potential confounding factors that could either mask an association between LDL and mortality or falsely suggest such an association when there is none. The major such potential confounding factor, as the authors of the systematic review themselves acknowledged, is statin treatment. Quote, it is worth considering that some of the participants with high LDL cholesterol may have started statin treatment during the observation period. Such treatment may have increased the lifespan for the group with high LDL cholesterol. However, any beneficial effects of statins on mortality would have been minimal because most statin trials have had little effect on cardiovascular disease and all-cause mortality, with a maximum reduction of mortality of two percentage points, end quote. Now, no reference was given for these claims, and no accounting for the potential impact of statins was attempted. And finally, no methodological quality assessment was presented for each individual study. However, independent analysis of this paper by the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine concluded that, quote, all the included cohort studies provide data that would be judged as low quality according to grade criteria, end quote. For deeper insight into the serious methodological flaws with this paper that Dr. Mason relies upon to support his claim that having elevated LDL cholesterol is good for you, I urge you to read the Center for Evidence-Based Medicine's detailed critique, again, link in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And you'll find an even more detailed critique of another paper with the same lead author, that's Ufa Ravenskov, which repeats some of the same arguments and adds several more, again, link in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And finally, another paper which I provided a link to analyzed data from three prospective studies of over 80,000 men aged between 18 and 39 and followed up for up to 34 years and found, quote, a continuous graded relationship of serum cholesterol level to long-term risk of coronary heart disease, cardiovascular disease, and all-cause mortality, substantial absolute risk and absolute excess risk of coronary heart disease and cardiovascular death for younger men with elevated serum cholesterol levels and longer estimated life expectancy for younger men with favorable serum cholesterol levels, end quote. And that quote is from a paper called Relationship of Baseline Serum Cholesterol Levels in Three Large Cohorts of Younger Men to Long-Term Coronary, Cardiovascular and All-Cause Mortality and to Longevity. At 1 minute 25. The fact is, however, that LDL particles can be found in atherosclerotic plaques. So does that mean LDL causes atherosclerosis? No. Just because two factors coexist doesn't mean that one causes the other. Here, Mason employs the fallacy of suppressed evidence by failing to mention the multiple strands of research, observational, experimental and Mendelian randomization or genetic risk studies, that support the argument that there is a causal relationship between elevated LDL cholesterol, 
or more strictly speaking between apolipoprotein B containing lipoproteins and atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. As just one example of this voluminous evidence base, I've included in the post accompanying this podcast episode figures from a systematic review and meta-analysis of intervention trials of statins and non-statin agents, including diet changes, that are intended to lower LDL cholesterol. For every 1 millimole per litre, or in American measures 38.7 milligram per deciliter reduction in LDL cholesterol achieved by the use of statins, the relative risk for major vascular events was reduced by 23%. Per 1 millimole per litre reduction in LDL cholesterol level achieved via non-statin interventions that work primarily via upregulation of LDL receptor expression, the relative risk for major vascular events dropped by 25%. Mason's hand-waving argument that correlation doesn't equal causation just doesn't stand up to the evidence that interventions which lower circulating LDL cholesterol also reduce atherosclerosis-related events. At 1 minute 44... The fact is, as shown by this paper, 75% of patients hospitalised with heart attack have normal levels of LDL. I've included a link to the paper Mason is referring to in the post accompanying this podcast episode. The authors of this paper state that, quote, prospective epidemiological data have suggested that the relationship between LDL and coronary heart disease is log linear, with a relative risk set at 1.0 for LDL of 40 milligrams per deciliter, end quote. That is, the risk of coronary heart disease starts to go up once LDL cholesterol rises above 40 milligrams per deciliter, that's 1.03 millimoles per litre. But in this study, only 17.6% of patients hospitalised for coronary artery disease had LDL cholesterol below 70 milligrams per deciliter. It's unclear how Mason derived his 75% figure or what he means by, quote, normal levels of LDL, end quote. Suffice it to say that pretty well all of the patients in this study had an LDL cholesterol level above the known threshold for coronary heart disease. As the godfather of Paleolithic nutrition, Dr. Lauren Cordain pointed out in a 2004 paper, quote, evidence from hunter-gatherer populations, while they were still following their indigenous lifestyles, showed no evidence for atherosclerosis, even in individuals living into the 7th and 8th decades of life. These populations had total cholesterol levels of 100 to 150 milligrams per deciliter, that's 2.6 to 3.9 millimoles per liter, with estimated LDL cholesterol levels of about 50 to 75 micrograms per deciliter, that's 1.3 to 1.9 millimoles per liter. The LDL levels of healthy neonates, that's newborns, are even today in the 30 to 70 milligram per deciliter range, that's 0.8 to 1.8 millimoles per liter. In fact, modern humans are the only adult mammals, excluding some domesticated animals, with a mean LDL level over 80 milligrams per deciliter, that's 2.1 millimoles per liter, and a total cholesterol over 160 milligrams per deciliter, or 4.1 millimoles per liter. Thus, although an LDL level of 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter seems excessively low by modern American standards, it is precisely the normal range for individuals living the lifestyle and eating the diet for which we are genetically adapted, end quote. And that quote is from the paper called Optimal Low-Density Lipoprotein is 50 to 70 milligrams per deciliter, lower is better and physiologically normal. And finally, LDL cholesterol levels decline in the 48 hours following a heart attack, 
So the LDL cholesterol measured in these patients, to which Mason was referring, was not re representative of their usual levels anyway. At 1 minute 54. Rather, we've got compelling evidence that the root cause of heart disease is actually this, a blood clot, or more specifically, thrombosis. Essentially, atherosclerosis is the result of blood clots forming inside blood vessels. Of course, blood clots are not just made of red blood cells. They also contain platelets and fibrin, which forms the strands that bind the clot together. And these too have been found buried deep inside atherosclerotic plaques. And the lipid heart hypothesis does not explain this at all. The fact that blood clots occur within atherosclerotic plaques is not exactly groundbreaking to cardiovascular disease researchers who've been documenting such clots for decades. And you know something that causes more blood clots to form? Elevated LDL cholesterol. In the post accompanying this podcast episode, I've linked to a paper that describes multiple mechanisms by which elevated LDL cholesterol increases blood clotting, including stimulating platelet activation and raising the levels of fibrinogen, the precursor to fibrin. And as described in another paper that I've linked to, LDL cholesterol increases the formation of thrombi or blood clots in the microvasculature of the heart muscle. The clots are formed when von Willebrand factor activates platelets, causing them to clump together. Von Willebrand factor can also bind red blood cells and cross-linked fibrin. And wouldn't you know it, patients with hypercholesterolemia, that's high blood levels of cholesterol, have higher plasma levels of von Willebrand factor. Finally, people with a rare genetic condition called abetalipoproteinemia that results in a lack of all apolipoprotein B-containing lipoproteins, including LDL cholesterol, have reduced platelet activation. Hence, the lipid heart hypothesis, in fact, explains the presence of blood clots within atherosclerotic plaques perfectly well, since elevated LDL cholesterol increases the propensity of the blood to form clots via multiple mechanisms. At 6 minutes 19 seconds. Phytosterols, this fake form of plant cholesterol, is readily detected in atherosclerotic plaques, and that's been shown by numerous research. Phytosterols are not a, quote, fake form of cholesterol, end quote. They're a naturally occurring compound in plant foods, which our Paleolithic ancestors consumed in significant amounts. And while it is true that phytosterols are detectable in atherosclerotic plaques, a comprehensive review of the use of plant sterols as functional foods concluded that, at present, it is not clear whether plant sterols increase, decrease, or have no effect on atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. At 6 minutes 42. Fortunately for most of us, our bodies can reject most of the plant sterols that we consume, with only about 1% actually being absorbed and assimilated into our tissues. Some people aren't this lucky, however. They have a disease called cytosterolemia, and that means that rather than absorbing only 1%, they can absorb between 15 and 60%. And the consequence of this can be dire. There being one case of a five-year-old dying from sudden cardiac death related to premature atherosclerosis. Premature severe atherosclerosis is the norm in this condition where you absorb too much plant sterol. Despite this, phytosterols are often lauded for their ability to reduce cholesterol levels. 
And we have products like this, which deliberately contain added plant sterols, which are promoted for cardiovascular health, despite there being approximately zero evidence of cardiovascular benefit and plenty of evidence of harm. Once again, employing the fallacy of suppressed evidence, Mason fails to mention that the some people with cetosterolemia comprise a grand total of 110 reported cases worldwide. To Stillman Mason's argument, genetic studies suggest that the condition may be less rare than previously believed, with roughly 1 in 200,000 people having genetic mutations that adversely affect their phytosterol metabolism. Even so, the relevance of the dire consequences of phytosterol intake in people with cetosterolemia to the 199,909 out of every 200,000 people who don't have this rare condition is, to put it mildly, unclear. And to reiterate my earlier point, it is not true that there is, quote, plenty of evidence of harm, end quote, a supplemental phytosterol intake. The evidence is currently inconsistent. Now, for the record, I do not recommend the use of phytosterol supplements or functional foods such as margarines fortified with phytosterols. These are highly processed foods or food components to which our species has no history of exposure, unlike the phytosterols found naturally in plant foods. At 8 minutes 35. So this study looked at the impact of butter, olive oil and coconut oil on cholesterol in the blood. And it found that both coconut and olive oil caused a drop in LDL levels, in my opinion, due to the plant sterile content. And this was despite the coconut oil containing 94% saturated fat it still led to a drop in LDL. This is a clear repudiation of the claim that saturated fat increases LDL. As always, I provided a link to the study that Mason is referring to in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And once again, he omits crucial information, namely that the decline in LDL cholesterol levels in people assigned to eat coconut oil or olive oil fail to reach statistical significance. Now, this occurs when there is a widespread in responses. That is, some participants' LDL cholesterol went up and others went down. Importantly, while participants were given 50 grams per day of their assigned oil or fat, and instructed to incorporate it into their usual diet or use it as a supplement, daily total fat intake in the coconut oil group rose by 29 grams, in the olive oil group by 28 grams, and in the butter group by only 14 grams. This indicates that participants were partially substituting the oils or butter for their regular cooking fats and spreads, but there was less substitution in the butter group. The authors did not attempt to account for these variations in the source of fat intake in their analysis. Furthermore, the authors attributed the difference in impact on LDL cholesterol of the two highly saturated fats, that's the coconut oil and butter, not to the phytosterol content of the former, that is coconut oil, but to the substantial variance in fatty acid profiles of these two fats. Coconut oil predominantly contains lauric acid, whilst butter is high in palmitic and stearic acids, which have been shown in previous research to raise LDL cholesterol more than lauric acid. At 9 minutes 10. Now, one of the major reasons seed oils contribute to atherosclerosis is that their polyunsaturated chemical structure contains unstable bonds which are prone to oxidation. Basically, all the seed and vegetable oils you see in stores are oxidised. Note that Mason has at no point in this presentation provided evidence that, quote, seed oils contribute to atherosclerosis, end quote. 
It's a rhetorical trick to insert this claim into his talk at this point, to imply that he has proven a point that, in fact, he has not. Now, it's undeniable that polyunsaturated vegetable oils are prone to oxidation. However, the impact of oxidized LDL cholesterol on coronary heart disease risk is outweighed by the total number of atherogenic, that is, apolipoprotein B-containing lipoproteins, including subtypes of LDL cholesterol. For example, a study which followed 18,140 men and 32,826 women for six years found that, quote, circulating oxidized low-density lipoprotein measured with antibody 4E6 is not an independent overall predictor of coronary heart disease after adjustment of lipid markers and is less predictive in development of coronary heart disease than apolipoprotein B and the ratio of total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol, end quote. To paraphrase Slick Willie himself, it's the ApoB, stupid. Even more importantly, another study showed that as circulating LDL became more oxidized, it was less able to penetrate the inner lining of the artery wall to form an atherosclerotic plaque. So Mason's focus on oxidation products formed within the blood is misplaced. It's what's happening in the artery wall that matters when it comes to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. At 9 minutes 47... And the story for blood oxidation products becomes even more interesting when we have subjects with poor blood sugar control. The two left columns represent subjects with normal blood glucose levels, and the right column, those with poorly controlled diabetes, meaning they've got high blood sugar levels. And you can see the blood oxidation product level is much higher in the poorly controlled diabetics. Furthermore, the blood oxidation products lasted for nine times longer in these subjects, being detected in the circulation for three days compared to eight hours for the healthier subjects. So what you might ask is the problem with oxidation products in the blood. The answer is atherosclerosis, as in oxidative stress in the blood triggers blood clotting or thrombosis, which, as you now know, is the source of atherosclerosis. I've included a link to the study Mason is referencing in the post accompanying this podcast episode and also the graph that he referred to in this presentation. And it doesn't look good. But there are two other graphs from the same study which Mason did not feature in his presentation. And naturally, of course, I've included them in the post. And these graphs show how oxidized dietary cholesterol remains in the bloodstream of healthy human subjects for three days and is incorporated into their circulating lipoproteins. Now, if Mason is as deeply concerned about the impact of oxidation products in the blood on atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease as he purports to be, why didn't he sound the alarm about oxidized cholesterol, which is formed when animal-sourced food products are heated, especially in dry heat processes? After all, oxidized cholesterol elevates oxidation products in the bloodstream of healthy people for as long as oxidized fats persisted in the blood of poorly controlled diabetics. Finally, it's important to point out that Mason's claim that thrombosis is the source of atherosclerosis has not been proven by any of the evidence he presents in this talk. Thrombosis is one of many contributing causes of the atherosclerotic process, and it turns out that elevated LDL cholesterol and, to an even greater extent, apolipoprotein B, are causally involved in many, if not all, of these processes. At 13 minutes 30 seconds... The size and density of LDL, however, changes when it becomes damaged, of which oxidation is a major cause. 
In this sample, you can see four distinct populations of LDL, exactly three more than normal, representing the presence of oxidised and therefore damaging LDL particles. This LDL is often referred to as small dents, given they become microscopically smaller. Mason argues that oxidation causes normal, supposedly harmless LDL to become dangerous, atherogenic, small, dense LDL. But in fact, the relationship between them is exactly opposite to his formulation. A quote from a paper called Circulating Oxidized Low-Density Lipoprotein, a Biomarker of Atherosclerosis and Cardiovascular Risk. Quote, low-density lipoproteins, LDLs, are susceptible to structural modifications by oxidation, particularly the small, dense LDL particles, end quote. In other words, it's the small, dense LDL that promotes oxidation, not the other way around. And furthermore, having a higher blood level of linoleic acid, the omega-6 fatty acid found in abundance in those dreaded seed oils, is associated with having lower, small, dense LDL. Quote, total omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids and linoleic acid were significantly and inversely associated with total and small LDL particle concentrations and significantly and positively associated with large LDL particle concentration and LDL size, end quote. Or in English, the higher the level of fatty acids associated with so-called seed oil intake, the lower the level of the dangerous small dense LDL particles and the higher the level of the benign, large and fluffy LDL. In a randomized controlled trial of people with elevated levels of small, dense LDL particles, a high-risk profile for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease described as LDL phenotype B, a moderate carbohydrate, very high saturated fat diet further raised blood levels of small, dense LDL after three weeks. Now, moderate carbohydrate meant that carbohydrate comprised 39% of daily calories and very high saturated fat meant 36% of daily calories were derived from saturated fat. Conversely, a low saturated fat diet comprising 37% carbohydrate and only 9% saturated fat reduced small, dense LDL particle number. Plasma concentrations of the atherogenic particle apolipoprotein B rose by 9.5% in the high saturated fat group and dropped 6.8% in the low saturated fat group. Well, that doesn't fit Mason's narrative, does it? 13 minutes, 58 seconds. And while most people have heart attacks have normal total levels of LDL, there being no difference in LDL levels with or without a heart attack, when we look at damaged or oxidised LDL, it's a different story. Look at the level of damaged LDL in the group on the left who don't have heart disease. Compare it to the oxidised LDL level in the two groups on the right who do have heart disease. Chalk and cheese. I've already discussed Mason's deceptive use of the term normal in relation to LDL cholesterol, so I won't rehash this argument. But I've included a link to the study from which Mason took the diagram that he showed in his presentation and, of course, reproduced the diagram in the post accompanying this podcast episode. And you'll notice that there is absolutely no mention of oxidized cholesterol on that diagram. The biomarker that was measured in this study was LDL-C4, a subfraction of LDL cholesterol that is classified as small, dense LDL, which, as you'll remember from the previous point, is not a product of oxidation, but a molecule that is particularly susceptible to it. And in fact, you won't find the terms oxidized 
oxidation or oxidative stress anywhere in the article from which Mason took the diagram. You can go ahead and search it for yourself. Of course, I've included a link. The only instances of oxy anything that you'll find are in the references section. Mason has completely misrepresented this study in order to bolster his argument that people should be focusing on oxidation products rather than their LDL cholesterol level. At 14 minutes 27. An oxidized LDL, or of course any other blood oxidation product, is also able to damage this furry layer that lines blood vessels, called the glycocalyx. This is perhaps the most important level of protection against atherosclerosis that most doctors have never heard about. Amongst other things, it shields the artery walls from coagulation particles, secretes something called antithrombin-3 that inhibits clots from forming, and stimulates the production of nitric oxide, itself another potent inhibitor of blood coagulation. The fact that oxidised LDL damages the glycocalyx means it significantly increases the risk of clotting and therefore atherosclerosis. Once again, Mason fails to mention that oxidised dietary cholesterol, that is cholesterol that was already oxidised at the time it was consumed in the form of cooked animal products, is a more persistent blood oxidation product than oxidised fats. Why doesn't he mention this? Because it doesn't suit his argument that seed oils, rather than constituents of animal-derived foods, drive atherosclerosis. It's also important to note that inflammation, rather than oxidative stress, is thought to be the initiating event in glycocalyx damage, with oxidative stress occurring as a consequence of inflammation. 15 minutes, 13 seconds. Oxidation stress too appears to be the cause of calcification within arteries. Oxidation has been shown to lead to DNA damage, which leads to the expression of a chemical moiety called poly-ADP ribose. And this then lays down calcium within the lining of the arteries. That coronary artery calcification is associated with unstable plaques and heart attack is therefore probably not a coincidence. This is a gross oversimplification of a complex topic. Whilst it is certainly true that spotty calcification, which occurs early in the development of atherosclerosis, is associated with plaque instability and increased risk of heart attack, more extensive calcification is associated with stable plaques. A quote from a paper called Detecting Unstable Plaques in Humans Using Cardiac CT Can It Guide Treatments? Quote, Although there is overwhelming evidence that higher calcium scores are associated with a greater cardiovascular risk, at an individual plaque level, studies have shown that calcified plaques are more stable and less prone to rupture, end quote. In other words, a high coronary artery calcium score indicates extensive atherosclerosis, but it's not the heavily calcified plaques that are the riskiest. It's those with less and more diffuse calcification. 15 minutes 45. Interestingly, Statins are also known to damage DNA, a fact which was apparent to the Japanese scientists who stopped researching the mycotoxin that eventually became the first statin because of the increased rate of cancer in test dogs. Which makes it unsurprising that statins also significantly increase coronary artery calcification. While it is true that some of the dogs treated with mevastatin, which was the first statin, developed intestinal tumours and that this halted trials of the drug, the reason for this was never discovered. 
Surprisingly, people with dyslipidemia, that's an unfavorable pro-atherogenic cholesterol profile, actually show reduced chromosomal DNA damage after taking statins. A torvastatin upregulates the activity of certain genes involved in the repair of damaged DNA. In any case, Mason's attempt to link purported statin-induced DNA damage with increased coronary artery calcification is a complete non-sequitur. He doesn't even attempt to explain how these two phenomena might be linked. Now, Mason cites a study which does indeed find that statins increase coronary artery calcification in mice. There is now evidence that statin use increases the coronary artery calcium score in humans too, with longer use associated with a higher coronary artery calcium score. However, the study that Mason cited concluded that, quote, pravastatin treatment alters the microarchitecture of aortic calcium deposits with potential effects on plaque stability, end quote. Specifically, mice given pravastatin had a greater total number of calcium deposits, but reduced overall calcium deposit surface area. This implies that statins increase the density of calcium deposits in the mice, and multiple studies in humans have found that, quote, greater calcium density in plaques is associated with decreased cardiovascular disease risk, end quote, due to a stabilization effect of calcification on atherosclerotic plaque. At 16 minutes, 13 seconds. Now, this ties in with the most common cause of sudden heart attacks which is not the presence of atherosclerotic plaques themselves, but rather their rupture. High calcium scores indicate an increased tendency for plaques to rupture. Again, Mason's claim is contradicted by the published medical literature. A quote from a paper called Calcium Density of Coronary Artery Plaque and Risk of Incident Cardiovascular Events. Quote, several studies comparing acute heart disease with stable coronary heart disease have shown denser calcified plaque in stable coronary heart disease. A recent study of CT angiography showed that the majority of individuals with coronary artery calcium had calcified plaques and that the coronary heart disease risk in this group was markedly lower that in patients with some or all plaques uncalcified, end quote. High calcium scores do indicate a larger burden of atherosclerotic plaque and hence a higher risk of an acute event resulting from plaque rupture. But the most heavily calcified plaques are actually the least likely to rupture. 19 minutes 29. Both high and especially fluctuating blood glucose levels generate oxidative stress at the level of the mitochondria the consequences of which you saw earlier when combined with seed oil consumption. A very good reason to keep your blood glucose down. High blood glucose levels and the impaired insulin sensitivity that drives them are undoubtedly hazardous to your health. The problem for Mason's argument is that studies consistently show that the polyunsaturated fatty acids found in so-called seed oils lower blood glucose and improve insulin sensitivity, while saturated fats have the opposite effect. For example, a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled feeding trials found that, quote, replacing saturated fatty acids with polyunsaturated fatty acids significantly lowered glucose, glycosylated hemoglobin, which is a measure of long-term average blood glucose levels, C-peptide, which is an indicator of how much insulin the body is making, and 
HOMA, that's the homeostasis model assessment for insulin resistance. Based on gold standard acute insulin response in 10 trials, polyunsaturated fatty acids significantly improved insulin secretory capacity, whether replacing carbohydrate, saturated fatty acids, or even monounsaturated fatty acids. That's from a paper called Effects of Saturated Fat, Polyunsaturated Fat, Monounsaturated Fat, and Carbohydrate on Glucose Insulin Homeostasis, a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled feeding trials. And in another study conducted on abdominally obese individuals, 15% of whom had diabetes, those assigned to eat a diet high in omega-6 fatty acids derived from vegetable oils, again, the so-called seed oils, had lower insulin and triglyceride levels than subjects assigned to a diet high in saturated fatty acids derived from butter. Multiple markers of inflammation and oxidative stress were assessed and, quote, polyunsaturated fatty acids had no adverse effects on oxidative stress or inflammation. Instead, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids may act as an anti-inflammatory, as evidenced by the reduced TNF receptor 2 and interleukin-1 receptor agonist concentrations. Mason's narrative that seed oils are the root of all evil because they cause blood glucose dysregulation and oxidative stress just isn't supported by the published literature. At 20 minutes 26. The consumption of seed oils began to rise in the early 1900s, well-timed to have a causal role in the heart disease epidemic. The graph shown by Mason to illustrate this claim was modified from a figure in a study which, as always, I've linked to in the post accompanying this podcast episode where I've also included the original unmodified figure. And it does show a significant rise in the availability of polyunsaturated fats. But if we're going to play the correlation might indicate causation game, why ignore another figure from the same study which showed an even more precipitous decline in the availability of potatoes, grains and cereals and other complex carbohydrates and a massive surge in sugar supply over the same time period. Because, once again, these data points don't fit with Mason's monomaniacal obsession with seed oils. 20 minutes, 35 seconds. And it's not just this association that suggests their consumption is problematic. Four randomised controlled trials, the gold standard of research, have demonstrated the harm of consuming these seed oils. I've included links to the four trials that Mason referred to in the post accompanying this podcast episode. 20 minutes, 48 seconds. In this study from 1965, patients post heart attacks were randomly allocated to one of three groups. There were two intervention groups consuming either olive or corn oil, also recommended to reduce their saturated fat intake, and a control group on a regular diet. After two years, 75% of the subjects in the control group remained free of repeat heart attacks compared to 57% and 52% of the olive and corn oil groups, respectively. Hardly a ringing endorsement for olive or corn oil. The conclusion of the investigators was quite blunt, in fact. Corn oil cannot be recommended in the treatment of ischemic heart disease. And in my opinion, this study also raises questions about olive oil. Mason's summary of the key findings of this study is accurate, although he neglected to mention that compliance with the prescribed treatments, 80 grams of either olive oil or corn oil, to be taken with meals in divided doses, was reasonably poor due to, quote, distaste, nausea and diarrhoea, end quote. Patients assigned to olive oil consumed at most 72.5% of the prescribed dose, 
while those assigned to corn oil consumed a maximum of 80% of the 80 gram per day dose. There were also quite significant differences in macronutrient intake with patients assigned to corn oil eating 25% less carbohydrate than controls, for instance. And I've included a table from this study illustrating these very significant differences in macronutrient intake in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Now, these differences in dietary intake and their potential causes and impacts on the results were not discussed in the study. 21 minutes, 38 seconds. The Sydney Diet Heart Study was a randomised controlled trial examining the effects of replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat in men who'd had heart attacks. But despite being finished in 1973, the results on whether this intervention reduced cardiac mortality were destined to never actually be published. It was only after Dr Chris Ramsden uncovered the raw data on punch cards and magnetic tapes buried in a basement that the full results were eventually published some 40 years later. The key finding being that the increased intake of polyunsaturated fats, as found in seed oils, increased the risk of death by 62%. This finding of a 62% increase in all-cause mortality was indeed reported in the study. However, Mason fails to include the 95% confidence interval for this outcome, which was 1.00 to 2.64. In statistics, the 95% confidence interval indicates the level of uncertainty around the measure of effect. It represents, quote, the range of values the true value in the population is expected to fall within based on the study results, end quote. The wider the 95% confidence interval, the greater the uncertainty of effect. And, quote, if the 95% confidence interval of the relative risk or odds ratio includes the value 1, That means it is possible the true value is 1, and there is no difference between groups. If that is the case, we say the null hypothesis cannot be rejected, or that there is no statistically significant difference shown, end quote. And that's from an article on confidence interval interpretation. Now, again, translating that into English, the finding of a 62% higher all-cause mortality in this study is conceivably due to chance. The other reported outcomes had similarly wide confidence intervals, with a lower bound close to 1. It's also important to point out that participants assigned to eat more polyunsaturated fat were instructed to replace saturated fats derived from animal fats, common margarines and shortenings with safflower oil and safflower oil margarine. The miracle brand of margarine used in this study was a commercially available product and in the 1960s when this study commenced, it contained approximately 15% trans fats. Trans fatty acids are well known to be extremely atherogenic, even at low levels of intake, and to be, quote, highly associated with the induction of inflammation, oxidative stress and lipoperoxidation, end quote. To put it plainly, the Sydney Diet Heart Study was not a study examining the effects of replacing saturated fats with polyunsaturated fats, but of replacing saturated fats with trans fats plus polyunsaturated fats. It's hardly surprising that no benefits were observed from the consumption of fats that are known to be the most deleterious for cardiovascular health. 22 minutes 29. A similar story exists for the Minnesota coronary experiment, which also finished in 1973. Remember, this was just before the food pyramid came out. If these studies had been published, do you think we would have ended up with the food pyramid the way it was? It would be madness. It was a double-blinded, randomised controlled trial on more than 9,000 men and women, 
again evaluating the effect of increasing dietary polyunsaturated fats. And again, there was an inexplicable delay in publishing the full findings. It took 16 years to just publish a few redacted findings. And when the results were finally published 43 years later, again after the raw data was located in a basement, it was revealed that increasing seed oil intake increased the risk of death, a result that was knowingly hidden for decades. And when the now deceased lead author was asked about this delay of publication, he explained it was because the study results were disappointing. I discussed the Minnesota coronary experiment in an earlier article called Never Trust, Always Verify, Even Your Allies. So I'm going to save myself some time and simply quote myself. Quote, the Minnesota coronary experiment was originally intended to be a long-running intervention trial in which dietary saturated fats, primarily from animal products, were almost entirely replaced with linoleic acid-rich corn oil. It enrolled residents of one nursing home and six state mental hospitals, 9,423 participants in total, a number close to the 10,000 participants that investigators had calculated would be required in order to reach statistical significance. However, the deinstitutionalization movement, which resulted in the closure of many mental hospitals and discharge of long-term patients into the community, caused the failure of this study. Almost three-quarters of participants were lost within the first year, and only about half of the remaining patients remained enrolled in the study for a full three years. With so few participants left, the study had no hope of reaching statistical significance, end quote. There was little point in publishing the results of a study which could not be carried out according to its protocol. However, these results were, quote, published in 1989 in a paper titled Test of Effect of Lipid Lowering by Diet on Cardiovascular Risk, the Minnesota Coronary Survey, with frank acknowledgement that the study failed to show benefit of the intervention for cardiovascular events, cardiovascular deaths, or total mortality, end quote. Specifically, and now this is a quote from the study itself, for the entire study population, no differences between the treatment and control groups were observed for cardiovascular events, cardiovascular deaths, or total mortality. A favorable trend for all these endpoints occurred in some younger age groups, end quote. Now, Mason claims that a re-evaluation of recovered data from the Minnesota Coronary Experiment, published in the BMJ in 2016, quote, revealed that increasing seed oil intake increased the risk of death, end quote. This is simply untrue. Another quote from my previous article, the BMJ article, that is the reanalysis, states that there was, quote, no mortality benefit for the intervention group in the full randomized cohort or for any pre-specified subgroup, end quote. In other words, there was no difference in outcomes. The finding of, quote, 22% higher risk of death for every 30 milligram per deciliter or 0.78 millimole per liter reduction in serum cholesterol applied equally to both the control and intervention groups, as is made clear on page 9. And here's a quote from that reanalysis. In survival analyses, table 4, there was a robust association between decreasing serum cholesterol and increased risk of death. And this association did not differ between the intervention and control group. In other words, participants whose cholesterol levels fell the most over the course of the study were the most likely to die, regardless of whether they were in the dietary intervention group or the control group, end quote. And that lengthy quote is from my previous article, Never Trust, Always Verify, Even Your Allies. 
Now, as I explained at length in that previous article, there is what's called a terminal decline in cholesterol as people near the end of their lives. Quote, declining cholesterol is the consequence of the deteriorating function that leads to death, rather than the cause of death. Anemia, chronic inflammation, chronic renal and adrenal failure, nutrient deficiencies and hypothyroidism, all common conditions in the final stages of life, all lead to reduced cholesterol production. Cancer, a leading cause of death, is also associated with reduced serum cholesterol, but cancer cells require cholesterol for growth, and hence the relationship between low serum cholesterol levels and cancer is also attributable primarily to reverse causation, end quote. I've been unable to locate any primary source for the claim that the study's lead author, Ivan Franz, admitted that the study results were suppressed because they were disappointing. If any reader could point me toward a source, such as an interview transcript or a recorded interview, please do provide a link in the comment section of the post accompanying this podcast episode. I'll reiterate the summary statement from my previous article. Quote, the final comment I would make on the Minnesota coronary experiment is that this study used an intervention namely replacement of saturated fats with corn oil, much of it in foods that contained high levels of trans fats, which are now known to be the most dangerous type of fats with regards to coronary artery disease, that is not advocated by any school of nutrition thought these days, so it has essentially no relevance to the modern diet wars, end quote. 23 minutes, 34 seconds. More recently, we've got the Women's Health Initiative study. So published first in 2006, it was a massive study of over 48,000 females designed to definitively assess the benefits of lowering saturated fat and increasing polyunsaturated fat intake. The most important outcome of this kind of study clearly being survival. And while the results were technically published, they were done in a very obscure manner almost like the authors didn't want anyone to actually see them. This vague sentence on page 661 of the publication was the single reference to the only statistically significant finding within the whole paper. Remember, this study cost 700 million US dollars, and that was the best they could do. The finding being that females with a history of heart disease faced a 26% increased risk of complications like heart attacks if they followed the intervention diet. Once again, Mason fails to state the 95% confidence interval of the 26% increased risk of complications like heart attacks, which was 1.03 to 1.54. In other words, it was barely statistically significant and hence unworthy of being given prominence in the article. Other findings which did not quite reach statistical significance were these, quote, compared with those in the entire comparison group, a trend was observed toward reduction of coronary heart disease risk among those in the intervention group who reached the lowest levels of saturated fat with a hazard ratio of 0.81 in the group that consumed less than 6.1% of energy from saturated fats. And for trans fats, the hazard ratio was 0.81 in the group consuming less than 1.1% of their energy intake from trans fats. Now, for those who achieved the highest intakes of fruits and vegetables, there was a hazard ratio of 0.88 in the group that consumed more than six and a half servings per day. And all of those facts and figures were from the study called Low-Fat Dietary Pattern and Risk of Cardiovascular Disease, the Women's Health Initiative Randomized Controlled Dietary Modification Trial. 
In other words, while most participants made very minor changes to their diets, the few who made more of an effort appeared to be getting somewhat better results. Duh. But far more importantly, Mason's statement that this study was, quote, designed to definitively assess the benefits of lowering saturated fat and increasing polyunsaturated fat intake, end quote, is simply wrong. Here is the statement of intent from the study itself. Quote, the primary aim of the Women's Health Initiative Dietary Modification Trial was to test whether behavioral intervention intended to produce a dietary pattern low in total fat, along with increased intakes of vegetables, fruits and grains, would decrease the incidence of breast and colorectal cancer in postmenopausal women. A secondary aim was to test whether such a dietary intervention, which did not focus on the intake of specific fats, would also reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, end quote. And from the results section, quote, by year six, mean fat intake decreased by 8.2% of energy intake in the intervention versus the comparison group, with small decreases in saturated fat, a decrease of 2.9%, monounsaturated fat, the decrease of 3.3%, and polyunsaturated fat, a decrease of 1.5%, end quote. At this stage of my analysis of this presentation, I've simply run out of any charitable instincts toward Dr. Paul Mason. He's either incapable of reading a study abstract or he's a bald-faced liar. In either case, anyone who trusts him to give evidence-based dietary advice, like the legions of adoring fans who populate the YouTube comments section on this video, is quite frankly seriously deficient in critical thinking skills. 25 minutes, 11 seconds. The problem is we're consuming a huge amount of seed oils. This BMJ paper found that seed oil intakes exceeding 6% of total energy are more harmful than high-carb diets. The fact is Australians consume more than double this amount, deriving 13% of their energy from seed oils. The fact is we'd be much better off with animal fats. The BMJ paper Mason was referring to did indeed find that once polyunsaturated fat intake, which is not all from so-called seed oils, since polyunsaturated fatty acids naturally occur in a wide range of foods, including some animal products, all cause mortality increase. And I've included the figure demonstrating this in the post accompanying this podcast episode. But this study also found that once intake of saturated fat, which is found mostly in animal fats, rose above 6%, all cause mortality rose at a very similar rate. But strangely, Mason doesn't mention this finding, perhaps because it contradicts his conclusion that, quote, we would be much better off with animal fats, end quote. Here are some other studies that Mason strangely fails to mention. A 2010 meta-analysis of eight randomized controlled trials involving a total of 13,614 participants, which replaced saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat and found the following, quote, the overall pooled risk reduction was 19%, a risk ratio of 0.081, with a confidence interval of 0.7 to 0.95, corresponding to 10% reduced coronary heart disease risk, risk ratio 0.9, 95% confidence interval 0.83 to 0.97, for each 5% energy of increased polyunsaturated fatty acids without evidence for statistical heterogeneity. Meta-regression identified study duration as an independent determinant of risk reduction with studies of longer duration showing greater benefits. If you'd prefer that in plain English, participants randomized to replace saturated with polyunsaturated fat lowered the risk of heart attack and or cardiac death by 19% compared to controls who continued their regular diet. 
each 5% extra increment of polyunsaturated fat intake lowered the risk of coronary heart disease by 10%, and the longer people stayed on the intervention diet, the more benefits they got. The results of all the trials pointed in the same direction. That is, there were no trials in which the opposite finding, more coronary heart disease with higher polyunsaturated fat intake, was made. An updated meta-analysis of intervention trials aimed at reducing saturated fat intake, published in 2020, found a 21% reduction in cardiovascular events in studies that replaced saturated fats by polyunsaturated fatty acids. Note that the 95% confidence interval includes zero. The 95% confidence interval was zero to 38%. So it is possible that replacing saturated with polyunsaturated fat intake has no effect on cardiovascular events, which is still a far cry from blaming this substitution for causing such events as Mason does. Other studies have shown that linoleic acids and other omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids found in those dreaded seed oils do not cause inflammation, do not raise levels of lipid peroxidation products in humans, nor biomarkers of oxidative stress, do reduce fasting insulin and enhance insulin sensitivity, and furthermore, higher blood levels of linoleic acid are associated with lower risks of total cardiovascular disease, cardiovascular mortality and ischemic stroke, and higher dietary intakes are associated with lower blood pressure. And Mason discussed at length processes that contribute to atherogenesis, namely adherence of LDL particles to the blood vessel wall, foam cell formation, and secretion of matrix metalloprotease. And he, of course, blamed them all on seed oil consumption. Well, a study conducted in middle-aged, mostly overweight to obese volunteers found that overfeeding with saturated fat increased the aggregation of LDL particles. This aggregation ramps up the tendency of LDL particles to stick to the inner lining of blood vessels and promotes foam cell formation and the secretion of matrix metalloprotease. On the other hand, overfeeding with unsaturated fats decreased binding of plasma lipoproteins to the proteoglycans found in the blood vessel wall. In other words, higher intake of saturated fats ramps up multiple processes that lead to atherogenesis, while the unsaturated fats have the opposite effect. Summing up, although I initially balked at the idea of wasting my extremely limited time on watching a video of Dr. Paul Mason, I ended up finding the process of investigating his claims highly illuminating. His lecture was a masterclass in the skilled deployment of logical fallacies to persuade his audience that he is right about nutrition and all the experts are wrong. After spending four intense days combing through every study cited by Mason, and many that he didn't cite because they contradict his assertions, I returned to the question that I posed in the subtitle of the first part of this article series. Is Dr. Paul Mason a disruptive genius, a dissembling showman, or something else? My conclusion is that Mason knowingly and willfully engages in deceptive conduct. Not only does he blatantly misrepresent and selectively report the findings of studies he cites, he also fails to mention the enormous body of research which contradicts his core assertion, namely that so-called seed oils are largely responsible for atherosclerotic heart disease. As to why he does this, I'm in no position to speculate. Finally, I cannot stress the following point highly enough. I do not personally recommend that you add omega-6 rich oils to your diet or that you consume processed foods that contain them. Most people already eat more calories than they need, and oils are essentially empty calories devoid of most micronutrients. And most processed foods that contain these oils are also full of highly refined carbohydrates, salt and food additives, whilst being deficient in fiber, unrefined carbohydrate and micronutrients. 
You cannot expect to attain or maintain good health if these foods constitute anything more than a tiny, occasional part of your diet. Instead of adding any kind of oil or fat to your diet, you should be focusing on consuming high-quality, minimally processed, real foods. However, blaming so-called seed oils for the epidemic of chronic disease that's currently plaguing the entire developed world and a good chunk of the developing world is deceptive in the extreme. All I can say is, if you base your dietary choices on the advice of people with as little respect for discovering truth as Dr. Paul Mason, I wish you luck. You're going to need it. Now, finally, producing the densely referenced posts on which this podcast was based took me a ridiculous number of hours. If you appreciate my work and you'd like to support me to do more in-depth critiques like this one, please consider a paid subscription to my Substack, which you can find at robintudor.substack.com. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.